Okay, hello, 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 and welcome back. Welcome back to the Clark and Miller English Podcast. And if this is your first time here, which it is for some of you, then welcome. Welcome here. Good to have you here. So, what are we going to do today? That's a good question. Well, today, you may have noticed, is one of our red episodes. So, what does that mean? Usually, we do blue episodes. Today is a red episode. So, the red episodes are. Less directed towards、um, sort of English teaching, English learning, grammar, vocabulary, that sort of thing. They're a bit less like English lessons, and they're a bit more let's sit around and stroke our beards and think about language in a more philosophical, more meta sort of way.、Um, This is these these episodes pretty good fun if you're a teacher or if you're just like interested in language and linguistics and stuff like that or both preferably both. Um, but even if you're you're you, you kind of consider yourself or identify as a language learner, this can there can be a lot of interesting stuff here too. So today we're going to hear an interview I did with the amazing Chia Swan Chong. Uh, Chia has been on my radar for a long time because she is a sort of expert in international communication, and、um, also she's、uh, sort of a big fan of something we call Elf. Elf, but it, it has nothing to do with Lord of the Rings stuff、um, and living for two hundred years or however long it is that elves live for. Elf stands for、uh, English as a lingua franca. So, what does that mean? Basically, English as a lingua franca is when you have,、uh, let's say, for example, two people communicating in English, and English isn't either of their first languages. So, it could be a guy from Mexico talking to a woman from Japan, and they're doing business together, or they're just meeting、um, at a nice restaurant on holiday. Remember holidays. And、um, yeah, they, they use English to communicate because the Mexican guy doesn't know Japanese, the Japanese woman doesn't know Spanish, and that's English as a lingua franca. Sounds like a simple enough concept, but the more you look at it, the more interesting it gets. And there is no better person <laughs> that I can think of to talk to about English as a lingua franca and international communication than Chia. And Thankfully, I got the opportunity to do that,、um, so I did, and we talked for about an hour about all these things.、Uh, very briefly, I'll give you an overview of what we talk about.、Uh, we talk about elf, but not the pixies, the the elf, the lingua franca elf.、Uh, we we also talk about this whole idea of. English as the first people who speak English as the first language, like me, and and people who have English as the second language, and who's better at communicating in English,、um, and we we there is some very surprising stuff about this.、Um, we also talk about how to be polite in English, or maybe not like an instruction on how to be polite, but what it means to be polite. What does it mean to be polite? This is a very cultural thing, isn't it? Um, there are some interesting stories、um, that Chia has about、uh, an interesting case of a misunderstanding between Indian catering ladies、um, and Heathrow baggage handlers. 
two very interestingly like interestingly different groups and and uh, uh, how language uh, caused uh, misunderstand misunderstandings uh, between the, these uh, these two groups um, she also has some interesting topics on how communication skills can actually save lives um, and we also talk about a little bit of a sort of teaching uh, area as well um, are teachers prescriptivists or descriptivists if you don't know what that means don't worry just keep listening because it's a really interesting question and it's something i've been struggling over for for a couple of years when i first thought of it um and how teaching grammar you know rules are not very useful and how grammar reasons can be more more productive so there's a little bit of stuff there for teachers and uh, finally we also just talk about how language can show us how different we are but also how similar we are yeah i know stroking a beard philosophical but that's good we we start getting quite philosophical towards the end um i really can't express how much i enjoyed this interview because it touched on all all the sort of things that i find most interesting about language and i hope that you do too because really um cultural differences looking at the world and all the different people in it and all the different ways we we interact with each other you know this is part of our humanity and it's part of what makes us uh such an interesting species i suppose uh not just having language but how we how we how we communicate with each other how we have misunderstandings uh, how we overcome those misunderstandings oh yeah i i'm i really like this one and let's just listen to it right okay so i'll leave you to it um thanks very much for being here remember to visit clarkandmiller.com we've got some fun stuff coming up and if you're on our mailing list you will be uh, able to join some free uh, workshops some free zoom classes um this is something we're planning i'll give you more details about that next time we do a podcast but uh, in the meantime enjoy this this is me and chia um geeking out about international communication and english as a lingua franca so yeah hi chia thanks so much for joining me today uh for a chat about elf and international communication and lots of other things i'm sure um yeah no thanks a lot for joining me thank you for having me <laughs> Cool, it's good to have you here. And um let's just go for a classic introduction. Like tell us uh, all about you. Um who are you? What's your background? What are you interested in? What makes you interested in language and what things about language interest you? And your your basic background, how did you get there? Wow, how much time do you yeah. have? <laughs> <laughs> right, my in, name is Chiaswan Chong, and uh, I'm a communication skills and intercultural skills trainer. My background is in ELT. Um, I started teaching English, oh gosh, how many years ago was that? More than 20 years ago. Um, and I did, you know, the usual, the CELTA, the DELTA. Um, I did an MA in Applied Linguistics in London. Um, and for quite a long time, I was teaching at International House London. Uh, and I became a teacher trainer there, became a CELTA trainer there um, and learned a lot about um, English language teaching, you know, the traditional 
um, communicative approach to teaching. Um, and then at some point, um, I was doing a lot of business English teaching and realized that my clients were were interested in a slightly different area. Um, you know, we talk about communicative, communicative competence and, and the ability to get that message across. And sometimes that's not always about grammar or vocabulary. Mm. Sometimes getting the message across requires a bit more than that. Um, it requires understanding the person you're talking to and what they know and what they don't know. It requires communication skills, intercultural skills, soft skills, in other words. Mm -hmm. um, and so the more I got into that aspect of teaching, um, the more I became really interested in it. And then when I did my MA at King's College London, um, my dissertation was in English as a lingua franca. And ironically, at that time, I chose that topic for my dissertation mainly because I was out to prove the ELF theory wrong. <laughs> Uh -huh. So oh, yes. before before we get too into it, just for our listeners, because we've got all sorts of listeners um, from teachers to people who are just interested in linguistics. Um, what is ELF? What is English as a lingua franca in a nutshell? Right. Um, I should let you, you know, talk about that because you did your <laughs> MA in ELF too, didn't yeah. you? I did right, mine. So, something um, we have in common, yeah. ELF is English as a lingua franca. Um, in short, it is the English we use to speak to people from all around the world who might not have English as a first language. So to put it simply, if a Peruvian person is speaking to a Chinese person, it is unlikely that they both speak each other's languages. So English becomes the convenient tool they use, a, a medium that they use to communicate. So you see these, the Peruvian businessman, for example, speaking in English to the Chinese businessman because um, it is the one language that they have in common. And in a situation like that, we say that they're using English as a lingua franca, as mm -hmm. a medium of communication. And um, interestingly, of course, when people use English um, with other so-called non-native speakers, um, the context is slightly different. I think you, you, there is less of a necessity to play by native speaker rules, for example. Um, and when the concept of ELF was first introduced, it caused quite a bit of controversy in the industry, both in the academic industry and, and the teaching industry. And a lot of teachers um, got quite upset <laughs> um, mm. by, by the idea that we don't have to follow native speaker rules when teaching English. Um, okay, and I so was one of those teachers. <laughs> yeah, let's touch on that for a second. Because so this was quite a controversial thing, this idea that we don't have to teach um, English according to how native speakers, so-called native speakers, are using it. And this upsets a lot of people, including yourself, as a, as a so-called non-native uh, speaker at the time. Is that, is that, is that fair? It's a, a weird one. A, you know, people mm -hmm. describe me in all sorts of ways. I see myself, if we have to use the terms native, non-native, which yeah, in itself is quite them. controversial, yeah, I've always seen myself as a native speaker of English. Okay. Um, reason being, I grew up speaking English. I was educated at school, learning maths and science through the mm -hmm. medium of English. Mm -hmm. English is the language I'm most comfortable in. English is the language I think in, I dream in. Um, so if someone says I'm a non-native speaker of English, I start to kind of wonder what I'm a native speaker of then because <laughs> <laughs> I then become very lost. I'm put in this lost cloud of like, who am I? Where do I belong? So for the purpose of identity, I, I, did, I identify myself with English as my first language. First language. Um, and shall we stick to those terms? Because I prefer those terms 
terms like first language speaker and second language speaker, mm -hmm. unless you have a, a better one, because terminology can be quite important. It's, it's tough, isn't it? Because like, mm -hmm. like I come from Singapore and mm -hmm. in Singapore, people speak multiple languages. So English tends to be the first language, but there are people who learn Chinese as a second language, but like myself, are more comfortable speaking English. There are also Singaporeans who might have English as a first language, but their home language might be Chinese or a dialect or Malay or, or Tamil. So it's a really tricky term, isn't it, to say someone's yeah. a native speaker or not, especially in countries where there are more than two languages. Um, you know, take Finland and Sweden, for example. There are a lot of Finnish-born Finnish people, Finnish people, <laughs> who <laughs> speak Swedish as a first language and Finnish as a second. Um, so I, I kind of compare it to that situation where when a country has two or more languages, like in India, like in Singapore, mm. um, according to Kachru, who created this, uh, these categories, um, he considered people from, say, the United Kingdom, America, Australia, as, you know, the inner circle, people who really were native speakers, kind of. And then he put people in countries like India and Singapore in the outer circle, mainly because these countries had more than one language one national language mm -hmm. which in itself is a questionable dichotomy it's, or it's already getting tricky yeah yeah um, because then that. i would say hang on a second <laughs> i might speak more than one language but the language i'm most comfortable in is english but then another singaporean might disagree with that so you know identity is a tricky one and the moment you say someone's inner or outer circle it it toys with that concept yeah. of yeah. identity yeah. nevertheless people still refer to Kachru's, you know, concentric circle models because we don't know how else to refer to these people. We don't know how else to talk about this con this issue. Mm -hmm. um, and it's convenient. It doesn't mean that we agree with it. Similarly, when I use the terms native speaker or non-native speaker, it does not say that I agree or disagree with those concepts, but it, it just becomes a an easy term to use in this discourse to, to, to have the discussion. For the sake of convenience, we go for those. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because to say and English as a first language, but what if you have two first languages, for example? Exactly. And they can shift as well. Mm. Um, yeah. So, every, okay. How about we go for native speaker, non-native speaker, but every time we're saying it today, we've got like quotation marks around them. Yeah. Yeah. So if you this can see us, pretend now. that you can see us and you're <laughs> seeing us doing the quotation, air quotation yeah. marks. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, means Absolutely. we're not fully on board, but we're going for it because it's convenient. So going back to the the how it all started, you 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 did your thesis or dissertation rather in um, English as a lingua franca because you were like appalled, annoyed, uh, or just just sort of um, fully in disagreement with with the idea that the native speaker model should be the one that we, we use to teach our students with? Well, okay. I think when I first heard this whole elf, um, you know, concept presented to me, I, I remember I was sitting in a, in a classroom and one of my fellow colleagues, my teachers, um, came up and did this presentation about what he learned about ELF. And I remember half the audience go nodding profusely, going, yeah. And the other half of the audience kind of looking angry and angry and red in the face. <laughs> <laughs> and I was one of those who, 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 who felt quite red in the face by the end of that presentation. Mm -hmm. And I suppose, you know, if you have based your career 
on teaching English a certain way, correcting your students when they drop the third person s, mm-hmm. um, spending time on making sure that they get relative clauses right, the difference between that and who and which, mm-hmm. to be suddenly then told that you know what you're wasting your time. <laughs> um, mm-hmm. Can come across like a slap in the face to some people, mm-hmm. and then there's the issue of native speakers themselves. Air quotation marks. Native speakers, yep. like you know, British teachers or American teachers, right. who might feel perhaps that they are being insulted because they are being told that their version of English doesn't have to be the standard version. That their English is no longer the benchmark that we should be using. For some native speakers, they take offense to that, mm-hmm. and um, I subsequently went on to write a book called "Successful International Communication," mm-hmm. and I looked into communication skills. I got very interested in intercultural skills, um, and one of the things I said was that um, you know native speakers aren't always the world's best communicators. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. If well, this is hold... this is like this has been kind of shown to be true, not just from instinct, but the studies, all not all, but generally point in that direction as well. That A- absolutely. I mean, the classic tale is of, and I say that the tale, but this does happen in reality constantly. Um, we've seen it happen with clients as well. You have a board mm. meeting with you know, um, managers from every country, from Korea, from Japan, from Italy, from Spain, and they're all sitting around talking to each other, and they're all so-called non-native speakers of English, and they're all using English as the lingua franca to communicate, and everything is going quite well. And then in walks an American manager, and, you know, he comes in and Mm -hmm. he uses his idioms and and complex sentences, um, his anecdotal references to American sports and cultural references like that. And suddenly no one in the room understands that one person. Now, I'm not saying that all native speakers are like that. I think Mm -hmm. um, teachers, for example, native or non-native, are very good at grading the language, at reading the room and knowing when their language is of too high a level, when they need to stop mm-hmm. using idioms. Teachers are quite good at this because but we get a lot of have, practice. Uh, have years of practice of getting exactly. good at that. Exactly. Yeah. So the mm-hmm. native speakers we are talking about here tend to be monolingual native speakers who don't have a lot of experience speaking internationally, who don't mm-hmm. have a lot of experience talking to people who are not native English speakers. Mm. Um, and you know what? Even within native speakers themselves, you know, if you put an American person next to someone from Newcastle and they're speaking English to each other, one in American, <laughs> say, you know, uh, New York English and another one in Geordie English, there is also that issue of, you know, as, I don't understand them. I've got personal experience from that. As somebody right in the in the middle of those two, um, I've actually had to be the translator uh, for the Americans, <laughs> and they just couldn't understand. It wasn't Geordie, it was uh, Glaswegian, but it was exactly the same issue. I can like, totally imagine. Yeah. And so you can imagine that, you know, even native speakers might struggle with someone with, you know, an accent that they are not used yeah. to, they're not familiar with. Um, what more, if you take that person and put them in a group of non-native speakers, you know, the non-native speakers might feel a little intimidated. And some of my students would immediately jump to the conclusion that it's their grammar, it's their vocabulary. Oh, no, okay. I, I can't understand because it's my fault. Um, take, for example, uh, I had a teacher trainee who walked into class and started talking about 
Heston Blumenthal. And my, the students all went, sorry, what? And he said, Heston Blumenthal, don't you know, the very famous celebrity chef. And they all looked at him, this blank look. Now, this <laughs> I, is not... I didn't know who it was either. <laughs> now, clearly, this is not an issue with English. It was an issue with a cultural reference, yes. a, yeah. a, a pop icon that they didn't know. Why would they, right? And so he then realized he had dug himself into a hole and he had to get out of that hole. So he continued to explain, Heston Blumenthal, have you not seen? He's really good at making different British dishes like trifle. And they all looked at him and said, <laughs> what's trifle? What's trifle? And then he started to describe trifle. And he says, he's got cake and it's got jelly. And they went, what's jelly? So that hole he dug for himself got deeper and deeper and deeper. As you can tell, most of these issues are not grammar or vocabulary related. Mm -hmm. They mm -hmm. are basically because those students didn't have the same cultural reference points. They didn't yeah. eat jelly. They didn't know what trifle was. They didn't know who this Heston Blumenthal was. Mm -hmm. And that is not an issue with their language. But ask any of those students in the class and imme immediately they are likely to say, oh no, it was my English. I need to study more English. Then I would understand him more, not realizing that actually it was him who needed to be more aware of you know, the references he was making and the knowledge his audience had or didn't have. Um, okay. And that, so I think it's communication skills. It comes back to communication skills. Yeah, yeah. And I want to bring it back round to that as well a bit later. So, but was this all the stuff that you were sort of discovering when you when you discovered Elf uh, for the first time? So was that when stuff Because <laughs> I know that like Elf has, has gone through like quite a lot of changes during. So, um, you know, at the beginning it was very features based people were looking at the grammar and the pronunciation and the vocabulary and how people were speaking and using grammar and using vocabulary and it's shifted a lot more towards other things like you know cultural awareness and strategies mm -hmm. so when mm -hmm. when you were studying it when you when you were doing your masters where were we on that sort of line we were fairly near the beginning not completely mm -hmm. at the beginning but there was still a lot of talk at that time about um vocabulary and grammar, the question of what should mm. we teach, what shouldn't we teach. That was where Elf was at that time. Um, there was a question of, you know, do we teach the third person S? If we know that most non-native speakers, even very advanced level non-native speakers, might continue to say he want and not he wants. Mm -hmm. And dropping that S makes absolutely no difference to the meaning, then why spend time teaching it? Right. And I remember feeling a bit upset by this you know like mm -hmm. you're messing around with with basic rules of a language um and i can imagine teachers listening to this podcast right now mm -hmm. might be feeling the same they might be saying but what it's a third person s how can you mess with that and um and then my, my instant reaction was okay it might not change the meaning whether you say he want or he wants it might not change the meaning but what about the impression you're, you were making right right okay. so that was that was my thesis it was all about the impression you are making so I started to focus in my thesis on polite requests now in ELT we teach how to teach students to say could I have a cup of tea I was wondering if I could have a mm. cup of tea if you don't mind could yeah. you make me a cup of tea etc <laughs> and of course going mm. by that logic um the elf logic then you know why bother if intelligibility being understood is the only thing that matters then why not just go around saying cup of tea give me tea yes. <laughs> or doing it, give me tea or tea please yeah, yeah. you know i want and tea. so 
And so I said, you know, surely intelligibility isn't the only issue. There is also impressions that you're making. Do, uh, are you making the right impression with your English? And we don't want students to to be understood, but being but they're being thought of as rude or abrupt or uh, unprofessional. So I went into this is um, sort of sorry to interrupt. This is this is pragmatic awareness, isn't it? Totally. This is um, yeah. So my, my, my research um, for my dissertation was totally into pragmatics and discourse. Um, mm -hmm. And I, I went through um, quite a large scale um, piece of research where I, I was working at International House London and mm -hmm. the people, the managers at the reception desk very kindly allowed me to place recording devices to record everyone that came in for a period of two days and made requests. Um, I then had to kind of go through about 12 hours of um, recorded <laughs> dialogues. Of, there were people like students who came to the reception asking for things, asking to see a teacher, for example. Um, there were people, passerbys, that walked off the street, both native and non-native speakers who would come in and ask um, about a course, about what they were offering. And I had that all on record. I would then transcribe every single request I heard and then categorize them into different types of requests, categorize them into native, non-native speakers, etc. cetera. Um, although the school I was using was in London, the reception mm -hmm. desk, most people at the reception desk were non-native speakers. They were yep. Japanese, Norwegian, et cetera, et cetera. Is this the one in Piccadilly, near, just down from Piccadilly? Yes, um, well, yeah. it's not at Piccadilly anymore. It, they've moved to Covent Garden. Okay, I did my shelter there. <laughs> so. Oh, right, so did I. Yeah, yeah. yeah cool. <laughs> so, yeah, interestingly, as I was doing this research, I was almost thinking, ah, you know, I'm going to be proved right that impression does matter, how you say mm. things does matter. And I then took the recordings of, you know, I, I categorized the requests. I, I put them into, like, eight categories. And then I presented them to a focus group of native speaker teachers, native speaker students, non-native speaker students, non-native speaker teachers. Mm -hmm. And then I got the results based on interviews and also on um, survey results. Like I had a questionnaire written out. Mm -hmm. But what was really interesting, I'll start with the native speaker. What was really interesting was the native speaker teachers. One of them, at least, I thought represented the group well by saying, what? He asked to see this person by just shouting their name out. <laughs> For example, you know, uh, someone approached the reception desk and said, Maria, Maria, I want to see Maria. <laughs> Director, Maria. Uh, the teachers were appalled by this, this particular mm -hmm. request. They were like, have we not taught them to say, could I see Maria or could you please put me in touch with Maria? But instead, all that came out was Maria, Director, Maria. <laughs> And um, they were, you know, understandably uh, marking this person down, saying, mm -hmm. oh, very, um, they're creating a very bad impression. These, these were the native speaker teachers, right? Okay. Interestingly, when non-native speaker, both teachers and students, when they were interviewed, they didn't say that at all. Mm -hmm. Instead, they said, oh, this person clearly has a lower level of English. Or mm -hmm. this person was clearly nervous. Or, so, 
they were more sympathetic. They were more sympathetic. They were more willing to take the context into consideration. Maybe this person, you know, maybe they were smiling and we can't see it because it's a recording. Mm-hmm. Maybe, maybe their body language said a different thing. Mm-hmm. Um, and one, one particular teacher, I remember quoting, saying, you know, I remember what it was like when I was a beginner in, at English. I remember being really nervous. I could say something really well in class, but when put in a real-life situation... I would freeze up. And then what came out of my mouth was completely not what I had, pre- I had prepared to say. Yeah. Perhaps this person was experiencing that. They would think, everyone, Maria, you know. Everyone gets that when they're learning a language, don't they? You know, this you, you're saying it in your head a hundred times, a hundred times, a hundred times, and you, you try to say it out, and then it's just one word. Exactly, exactly. And I, I've done that in German. Mm. And, you know, and I think mm. if you've had the experience of, learning and trying to use a foreign language you might be more sympathetic and which is why earlier we said you know monolinguals are sometimes quite guilty of not being sympathetic or understanding elf as a concept because they've never been in that situation and so and also you know if you believe that what you teach is what students learn then <laughs> then perhaps you know you might go down the wrong route because we all know that what we teach is what we teach what students actually absorb is a totally different thing mm-hmm. and then what they can then produce in a real life situation with other things being considered like nerves and the context um mm. you know what we teach is is not always what is then subsequently produced and you know non-native speaker teachers and students seem to understand that and they were much more much more sympathetic um and i i've looked into research ever since um recently i was reading some research about intonation Mm-hmm. Uh, native speakers, for example, can be much more harsher when judging someone's intonation. And I yeah. was at the receiving end of this when I first arrived from Singapore some 25 years ago. Mm-hmm. And in Singapore, when we speak English, although it's our first language, we tend to put the stress on the last word of a sentence. Mm-hmm. So I remember living in a house share and I was trying to get my housemates to take the rubbish out because... I kept being the one that took the rubbish out days and days on end. So I said to my housemate in a strong Singaporean accent, can you take the bin out, please? (laughs) And the following day, I overheard them talking about me and saying that I was being very rude Mm -hmm. and that Mm -hmm. I was fake. And and I couldn't figure out why. At that time, I wasn't Mm -hmm. a language teacher. I wasn't into linguistics. So I was very upset and hurt by this. So mm-hmm. I thought if I if I just phrase my request differently, maybe they'll be less judgmental of me. So I went there the next day, I went to the kitchen the next day and I said, I was wondering if you can take the bin out, please. <laughs> uh oh. <laughs> so the, wor- the words were different. I thought, hey, I was wondering. It's polite, right? Yeah, like uh, what your teachers taught you or yeah, what you're supposed but, to say but no, according to No, books. because <laughs> to them, my intonation say mm-hmm. the bin out, please the heavy stress on the last syllables did not go down well. And, and I bet they don't even realize it was the intonation. Just instinctively, when you hear that as a native speaker, you think, oh, this person's being very aggressive. Mm-hmm. But if I said the same sentences to an Indonesian person, a Malaysian person, a Singaporean person, they would not have taken it that way at all. Okay. And so in, intonation is an interesting one. We start to misunderstand people without even realizing why we've misunderstood them, without realizing that, Actually, intonation is very dependent on your first language, on your culture, and how you interpret it is so, so highly dependent on these things. 
And it was many years later when I was doing my MA when I heard about this researcher called Gumpus. I'm not sure if you've heard of him. Ooh, John no, I don't. Gumpus. John Gumpus. No, I don't know this he, one. Oh, he, hang on. In the 70s, he was a psychologist and academic. And um, in Heathrow Airport um, in the UK, in London, they were having some problems between the relationships between the baggage handlers and the cafeteria ladies they had got these new these new cafeteria ladies who had come in from india and pakistan and there they were serving them their lunches so gumpers was brought in because apparently they were those two groups of staff were not getting along and it was becoming a real issue wow. um, the baggage handlers thought the dinner ladies the cafeteria ladies were very rude and aggressive these cafeteria ladies thought that the baggage handlers were discriminating against them because of the color of their skin. Mm. So they brought John Gumpus, and this was in the 1970s, and Gumpus sat down at the cafeteria and just listened and watched the interactions. Mm. And he just came back and said, it all boils down to one word, gravy. Because when the British cafeteria ladies offered them gravy, they said, gravy, gravy. When the new cafeteria ladies offered them gravy, they said, gravy, gravy. This downward intonation, just a mm -hmm. bit like my experience with, can you take the bin out, please? Yeah, it's the same, same type of thing. Yes, yeah, the same type of thing. Mm -hmm. and, and the moment he noticed that, and the moment this information was shared with the staff, that realization immediately lifted the issue because then the, the baggage handlers realized, okay, they were not being aggressive. They were, it's just the accent. And the dinner ladies, the cafeteria ladies then realized, okay, they were not discriminating against us because of the color of our skin. It was just what the intonation they were used to, how a word was, they're used to the word being said in a particular way. Um, and just that realization solve the problem and i always say I, you know self-awareness and reflection goes a long way yeah i love stories when linguistics save the day <laughs> somehow <laughs> um it, yeah yeah no that's a really cool story i didn't know about that one that's an excellent um anecdote but that um, goes to show you that you know mm -hmm. in situations like that and there's a lot of research done in the last decade that showed in terms of intonation that you know, native speakers might take offense when a non-native speaker says, I don't agree in that mm -hmm. way. Whereas mm -hmm. they've found that non-native speakers don't take offense when each other does that because, right. because they are taking the context into consideration. They are, they are almost giving them a discount, you know, because they're saying, mm -hmm. okay, it's not your native language. So I'm going to clarify if you, what you really mean, meant by that. I'm not going to make assumptions that you're, you mean yeah. it to be aggressive. So even if in their own sort of linguistic, first language linguistic environment, um, like it's it's also not polite just to go Maria, or if it's, it's also not just polite to go gravy, but they still recognize that it might be okay in other, lang in other, in other linguistic environments. Or they might just simply recognize that, hey, it's not your first language, it's not mm -hmm. mine either. So mm -hmm. we just kind of give each other a wider berth and we, so, we, we accept that misunderstandings can happen. So I think that importance, again, of clarifying. If you're not sure, don't assume. Clarify. What did you mean by that? You know, did, did you really, did, were you upset with me there? Or, or what was that? <laughs> so, yeah, in a way, it's a kind of solidarity, isn't it? Yeah, I suppose. Because you recognise the same sort of struggles. They're non-political struggles, but they're, they're still some sort of, like, struggle. 
But you see, this is where native speakers, especially native speaker teachers, might, you know, find that they are becoming Mm -hmm. the outsider in this issue and might get um, perhaps offended or upset. And to which Mm -hmm. I say, this is not an issue of just, you know, it's not just an issue of native, non-native. It's an issue of understanding and non-understanding of the problem. And I know a lot of native speakers who are also great communicators. Similarly, I also know native speakers who are not. But mm-hmm. the native speakers I know who are great communicators are great because they understand the struggles of people using English when English is not their first language. Mm-hmm. They understand the need to tone down perhaps some of the idioms that have heavy cultural references. Mm-hmm. They understand that they need to clarify more. They need to make less assumptions about things because it's different from talking to your own friends in a pub, for example. They learn to code switch in that way, Uh, which brings me to a totally different story. Um, Okay. um, There was, I wish I I knew his name now. You probably know his name. Um, A Mm. football coach. No, I would not know his name. No, not a football fan. (laughs) There was a football coach who went to Holland to Uh become the coach of their their team, um, a football team in Holland. Mm -hmm. Um, And then during his stint in Holland, he did an interview, I think, with the BBC. And during the interview, he clearly had a different accent. So his years in Holland had made him used to speaking more slowly, perhaps mm-hmm. emphasizing certain keywords more, mm-hmm. perhaps using words that were less idiomatic. So his way of speaking was, I don't want to say less British, but perhaps more... Elf, more, el- you know? more elfy, yeah, I was going to say. More elfy. Well, I found that completely for myself as well. I mean, when I get back to Britain, I'm shocked by um, how unclear <laughs> all my friends are and how vague they can be. But also I'm kind of really happy that um, I've, I've become quite an unusually good communicator among like my peers back in, back in the UK because of... Uh, yeah, communicating in an international environment. Yes, the uh, practice you've got. Half my life, yeah. But you know what was really interesting about that football coach was if you look at the YouTube video and then look at the comments <laughs> below the video, it was shocking to see the number of British people who didn't understand why he was speaking in this way, understandably so, people perhaps who don't have experience with international communication and who reacted really badly to this they were saying, oh, what's wrong with him? Has he forgotten where he's come from? And, and um, this is a joke. Why is he speaking like that? Oh, he's trying to be Dutch. Isn't that funny? And, you know, people who just completely didn't realize that, you know, he's gotten used to this way of speaking because Terrible. he was trying to be better at communicating. And of course, you know, if you don't have experience with communicating internationally, then you just see this as an issue of well, losing your identity. Well, this is actually going to, this is, brings up a, something I hadn't planned on talking about, but I think this is a really cool point because you can, like, it's conceivable, I'm not saying this is how it works, but that you can conceive of a sort of um, a line where you have communication at one side and uh, sort of cultural solidarity or cultural um, empathy with your, you know, your own culture um, on the other. I mean, if you consider that language can be seen to fulfill two purposes. One being uh, to just state, like give information or request information. And the other to kind of um, bond with people and to create sort of uh, like uh, relationships based on on backgrounds and mutual things people have in common. Um, 
you know, like if I if I meet a British person in in a non-British environment, I might my accent might suddenly shift and become a lot more British. And you know what I say, I might be saying stuff that's not about giving information. It's just about um, you know forming a bond with someone because we both know Peep Show and we both know um, whatever like British sitcoms or, or something like that. So we have these and we code switch um, like this all the time. We do this all the time, don't we? I mean, yeah. identity is not a thing that exists in as, as just one solid state identity mm -hmm. is a very fluid concept we have multiple identities right when we speak to our parents we speak mm -hmm. in a particular way when we meet our friends at the pub we might change the way we speak ever so slightly when we are in a job interview for you know a very important formal job we might then again speak differently and so to say that, you know, someone can only speak one way because they are from this place mm -hmm. and they have to keep their accent. Sure, you can keep your accent, but you can have variations of that accent, if that makes yeah. sense. And yeah. I think and embracing that and understanding that, hey, so when we speak with people from an international context, we need to be aware of certain factors. And when we are speaking with friends in the pub, then, you know, we can speak in a slightly different way. We can talk yeah. about those cultural references. And I guess what a lot of these people commenting don't sort of seem to understand is that you don't have to sacrifice one for the other. You can just shift along that line. And, Absolutely. And, and, and a good communicator is someone who shifts along that line comfortably. Mm -hmm. Right. And um, more extensively, I suppose, and being able to go further in either direction. Yeah. And all that comes with practice. Like you said, you spent mm. some time in Bulgaria. You, you you communicate internationally all the time. And so mm. you've got used to, um, you know, the things to look out for, the kind of language to use and not to use, for example, your pronunciation, the way you connect your speech, all those things that you've become aware of that someone who, say, isn't a teacher and mm -hmm. is monolingual and has not been communicating interculturally might not notice these things. It's, yeah, and it's very difficult uh, to, when you're starting to start communicating to, uh, internationally if you're not used to it. I think it is a, a, quite a challenge for some people. Well, I, I've been um, doing a few things with native speakers, so that, mm -hmm. there is quite a demand now um, among companies, corporations that have to work internationally uh, to train their native speakers up, to get them ready for communicating in English, but in an international yeah. context. So recently I was um, at a firefighters conference. This was before the pandemic uh -huh. happened. Um, and I presented um, my concept and, and, and sort of um, a course on helping native speakers become more effective international communicators. Mm -hmm. And there was such interest in this topic. Um, you know, firefighters and, and, and chiefs of, of, of associations were coming up to me talking about how important this is because, hey, you know, if you're evacuating a concert hall of thousands of people and if you're making an announcement with the assumption that everyone understands British English just because they're in Britain, mm -hmm. and if you, if you have that concept or, or, or that idea that, hey, you're in Britain, you should understand British English, then what if there are, say, 20 people in that concert hall who actually doesn't understand? Are you willing mm -hmm. then to then say, well, they should then die because, <laughs> because they couldn't understand the idioms I was using or yeah. they couldn't understand the kind yeah. of speech I was using? In, in a firefighting situation, you can't. Everyone's lives are just as important as each other. And yes. so the way you communicate with, with every single individual, whatever their background is, has got to be really, really clear. 
leave the building is much clearer than vacate the premises, for example. For example, absolutely. Mm -hmm. um, I had a student who was complaining to me. They were at border control at Heathrow um, coming That's in after cool. a holiday. <laughs> and someone said to him, oh, so you're going to be in England for the next six months. How are you going to occupy yourself? And he just thought... <laughs> How am I going to occupy myself? What does that mean? Now, this person is an advanced level English speaker, but I think the custom officer didn't realize how idiomatic the phrase, mm -hmm. how are you going to occupy yourself mm -hmm. is, because he's so used to, you would think that he deals with international passengers all day long, he would know this, but clearly not. Yeah, no, because it takes years. I mean, I'm speaking like as a teacher, it takes years to get used to that as well. So... And that's just of pure grading. So I guess a customs officer has a lot of jobs um, and only some of it would involve grading his language or needing to grade his language. Needing to grade yeah. his language. And I think that there needs to be an openness as well. You need to be yeah. open to feedback, right? And if and feedback <clears throat> might be direct feedback that someone's saying, hey, I don't understand you, that's feedback. Mm -hmm. But feedback can also come in the forms of having terrible experiences with misunderstandings. <laughs> Yeah. experiences of miscommunication and people not doing what you ask them to do and then that feedback tells you hold on a second is it me is it because I was really unclear and then yeah. you learned that if you want to get things done especially in business English you see this all the time you know um, it, it, it goes past uh, you know basic grammar and lexis it's, it's about getting things done and mm -hmm. if if my message albeit grammatically correct if my message is going to be misunderstood it might cost my company hundreds mm. of thousands of pounds or dollars. And so clear communication becomes number one priority, not, not the grammar, not the lexis, but clear communication. And if grammar and lexis comes into making it clearer, sure. Yeah. But other things do too. Communication skills should be high up there in getting the message across clearly. Okay, yeah, this brings me to one of the questions I've got. Um, like... At the last uh, IATEFL conference, it's a big English teachers conference for those listening who don't know that, um, in Liverpool, when was that? Last, uh, oh my God, it was a year ago now. Um, more. But um, I, I, I went to this interesting um, talk. It was in one of the smaller rooms. Um, and it was, it was all, all on the passive and the crazy behavior that surrounds the passive tense and ergative verbs and all sorts of stuff. And I found it really interesting. It was really fascinating. I learned a lot about how, how the passive isn't just the passive is, is, is this weird creature with its own behavior. And, and if you start, you know, applying certain logic to it, it doesn't work anymore. And, um, yeah, it was, it was a really interesting talk and he, he was just revealing the complexity of a very small feature, um, defined feature of 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 language um is the guy was jonathan marks um he was not particularly i don't think he's particularly uh massively known but it was it was a fantastic talk and um i went up to him afterwards and <laughs> he he was saying like yeah that there, there used to be a lot more talks at conferences about how the language worked and um that's there's much much less of that now and and i think one of the reasons i was attracted to that particular talk was because it was so like deep onto, into the features. It was very much about like language, one very a whole talk on one language feature. And I thought that was kind of interesting because it stood out because a lot of the rest of the conference was about all sorts of other things, various sort of soft skill directions, but, and lots, lots of things to be fair, but um, nothing quite so 
No, I, I don't have the right word for it. I want to say descriptive, but that's kind of a different thing. Um, but yeah, I mean, do you think, and I, I think this sort of mirrors uh, Elf a little bit as well, because, you know, as we discussed, Elf started off very technical, didn't it? It started off looking at phonology and, and the way things are pronounced and then, you know, grammatical features and linguistic features and then moved more and more into this sort of communicative um, side, which is where you find yourself now. And I want to talk more about that in a bit as well. But I'm just wondering, could it be, could it be possible that um, in, in the industry as a whole, as well as in Elf, that... Uh, should we be leaving this other side behind? Do you think this is the sort of evolution away from something? Or do you think there can be this sort of um, two wheels turning at the same time within <laughs> within the industry? I don't know. I, I, I don't know the answer and I don't know how I feel about it. But I, it's an observation, I think, that I've sort of noticed that we're looking at that side, the technical side of things a lot less than we used mm -hmm. to. And, and is this is this a bad thing, do you think? Or is this is this cool? I see. Uh, this is where I, I kind of beg to differ. I uh -huh. think we will never leave. <laughs> we won't be able to, and we will never leave um, the side. You know, the, the grammar, the lexes, mm -hmm. the, the pronunciation features, the nitty gritty of descriptive, prescriptive grammar. We will never leave that because okay. that, in essence, to a lot of teachers out there, is the foundation of. English language teaching. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you learn to speak a language by learning the system of how the language is organized, in other words, grammar, by mm -hmm. learning the words that fill those slots and the collocations mm -hmm. and the functions of those words and the meaning of those words, vocabulary. And then we need to say those words, um, pronunciation, and those are key to speaking a language. So, no, I, I don't think we'll ever leave that. And, and interestingly, mm -hmm. I have to say, when anyone does a talk at any of these conferences about grammar, that room will undoubtedly be filled <laughs> to the max. Um, I have proof of this because um, several years ago, I say several years, quite a few years ago, I did a talk at ITEFL called uh, Systemic Functional Grammar. Oh, it cool. Is, is this it is Halliday's? A, this Halliday's is Halliday's stuff. Systemic Functional cool. Grammar. It's, a, it's a, a look at grammar that is very different, a system of grammar that's very different from the way most ELT course books deal with grammar. <laughs> uh, I, I studied it when I was doing my MA um, for one of the modules, got really, really interested in it, kept wondering why we don't do more of this in ELT, <laughs> and mm -hmm. decided to do a talk uh, at ITAFL thinking nobody's going to be interested in something so technical and so dry. And, so and my room was so filled with people sitting mm -hmm. on the floor, standing up, sitting on drain pipes. <laughs> it, was, it was mad. I don't think I've ever had my room so filled before. <laughs> cool. And, you know, the same thing goes with publications. I often joke that if you write a grammar book, that's going to sell better than any other book on methodology or, you know, mm. life skills or soft skills. Um, because essentially, I think teachers, um, native and non-native alike, mm -hmm. probably are least secure about these technical facts, these technical side of teaching mm. you know when it comes to soft skills the word soft kind of describes how we feel about it doesn't it it's sort of airy, <laughs> fairy, airy fairy kind of nebulous what is this thing you know mm. can you even define can you even test assess 
soft skills. You can't because, mm. you know, it's not a tick boxy thing. You can't yeah. say someone is correct or wrong because soft skills by its very nature is not about being correct or wrong. It's about improving the way you do something, right? Mm. Whereas with grammar and Lexus, that's that comfort of something being black or white, right or wrong. And, um, and teachers don't want to be wrong. <laughs> well, that's, yeah, well, I, I agree with, well, I don't know if you made that point in there, but like, it's a dangerous area to think in that as that way as well, like whether things are right or wrong, of course. And this is something I think um, English as a lingua franca as a field has really, really explored, whether it's focusing on um, features or whether it's focusing on um, sort of uh, communicative abilities. Um, I think the the issue yeah. you mentioned, the, the issue you mentioned about um, Elf perhaps mirroring this move away from uh, grammar and Lexis, I, I think they are slightly different things. So I think in the early days of Elf, where the focus is on, um, you know, if you look at all the non-native speakers using English as a lingua franca, what commonalities are there? Oh, they all tend to drop the third person S, for example, mm -hmm. or they mm -hmm. all tend not to pronounce the, the TH sound, instead substituting it with some, something else, which even some native speakers do. Um, they tend to, uh, for example, use prepositions a bit more loosely with, with, with more creativity, for example. Um, and these things became the subject of a lot of debate. Um, pronunciation features like connected speech, mm -hmm. um, the schwa, the weak form schwa, which in a lot of situations can cause more problems with intelligibility, saying T for two as opposed to T for two is more likely to be misunderstood in an international context. Um, so these issues were brought up in the early days of ELF and a lot of teachers who disagreed sort of hung on to these these concepts saying, well, we, we, but we can't possibly teach students the wrong thing. We can't teach students to say he wants instead of he wants. Mm -hmm. We mm -hmm. can't teach students um, to say going to and ignore the fact that most people actually say gonna. What if they watch a television program and they hear gonna? They're not going to understand it, for example. So these mm -hmm. very, very valid arguments mm -hmm. came up from teachers. Um, and then as time went on, they realized that perhaps there is no such thing as one kind of elf. There is no such thing as all the non-native speakers of, of the world all using English in the same oh, way. Oh, right. Because yeah. They don't, right? There is no one variety of elf. Perhaps mm. um, a group of Southeast Asian non-native speakers might come together and use English in a particular way. Perhaps a group of Scandinavians might come together and use English in a completely different way from the Southeast Asian speakers. Um, perhaps a group of business people might use English in a very different way from a group of friends who are using English. So they realize that instead of one variety of elf, there are different types of elf. So mm. terms like belf were created. Belf stands for <laughs> business English as a foreign language. Oh, sorry, business English as a lingua franca. Mm -hmm. um, and then there were like Scandinavian elf and, and Southeast Asian elf. And, you know, um, and then people start to realize perhaps elf is a fluid concept because when two mm. people come together, let's say you are a Bulgarian speaker and I am a Chinese speaker. And when mm. we come together, whose elf do we use? you know what, we create our own elf. Mm -hmm. We accommodate each other. I try to figure out what you're saying and accommodate to your version of English and you listen to what I'm saying and you try to accommodate me and 
in that process, in a very dynamic, fluid sort of way, we are creating our own version of elf. This really ties into, um, I've been reading a little bit, and I'd love to do a podcast on it at some point, uh, desegregational linguistics. Um, a very, like, very, very, is, they, they're embracing the fluidity of, of language as a whole. And they're saying that no language exists. I mean, they're quite <laughs> radical. And they're, they're saying, there's no such thing as English. There's no such thing as French. Everything is completely <laughs> fluid. And, um, you know, you're, you can look at a grammar feature like going to, for example, and every single instance in the world ever of the use of going to is slightly different from the other one. So, you know, when you used going to just earlier uh, with me, your the precise nature of that that reason for using going to and all the signals and the context that surrounds that is not the same as the last time I used going to. For That's example. not going to make our job as English teachers very easy, is it? <laughs> no, it's kind of making it more difficult. But I mean, yeah, yeah. But this, in a way, is probably how people felt about Elf when it first came out as well. It's I, not making I think their as job humans. As humans, we want to categorize things. We want to put things into nice, neat boxes. I mean, earlier you were talking about a talk about the passive voice that you attended, and you went really deep into the different uses of the passive voice. But look at any course book dealing with the passive voice, and you're, you, you're going to see a sort of a blanket rule that you know at the back of your mind as an experienced teacher isn't necessarily true, right? We tell students rules that probably was made up by the very first grammar book written 20 years ago, and then every book since then has been copying Raymond Murphy, for example. <laughs> um, and, and, and then you realize, hang on, we say there are three conditionals. Are there really three conditionals? Because some linguists, some linguists say that there are 21 conditionals or, mm -hmm. or more, you know. Um, mm -hmm. The same thing goes with, say, the passive voice. Um, why do we use the passive voice? Every course book you know says we use the passive voice when the, the, the doer of the action is less important. Is that really true? No. True. But we hold on to convenient rules, convenient um, concepts, because we need to convey something simple enough so that students can hold yeah. on to it. Um, and, and, and that, that is a lot of argument to be, you know, there's a lot of benefits of that. It's, you know, we, we do come back in the end and say to students, oh, there are lots of exceptions in English. When mm -hmm. the truth is, there are no exceptions in English. You were just teaching some simplified nonsense in the first place. <laughs> right. And this is, uh, Mike Lewis uh, talked about this a lot. Um, yes. Uh, have you read The English Verb? His, I love The like, English 1984 Verb. 1984 book. My God, that blew my mind. I, I love If there are exceptions, then it's not a rule. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. And, and in the English verb, he talks about remote, remote tenses and near tenses. Mm -hmm. So instead of calling them past and present, why not call them remote and near? And for a long time, I was obsessed with this concept. And I was going into classes, telling students to forget everything they've ever learned about grammar <laughs> and labeling them with remote <laughs> and near tenses. Um, mm -hmm. And it, it, you know, in a one-to-one -one situation when I'm teaching students face-to-face, -face, it, it worked because I was passionate about the concept and, and, and they got it. And then I thought, you know, every single course book needs to relabel the tenses. Well, that's how I felt as well. I still kind of feel like that. But, um, but then, I understand you know, Now that I write materials and now mm -hmm. that I'm on the other end of things and writing, mm -hmm. you know, materials for course books and things like that, I start to see that, hey, you know, Sometimes it's really hard to radically change things that have been done a certain yeah. way because students and teachers have an expectation. And when they see something that is radically unfamiliar, the first reaction is going to be rejecting it because I'm not there. I can't be there face to face with every single teacher, every single student to coach them through this. 
So instantly, mm-hmm. if they see a material that they're not familiar with, they're going to just reject it. And so yeah. perhaps it's easier to do something, albeit not entirely accurate, but simple enough for someone to grasp. Yeah, yeah. This is the this is the dilemma we are in as teachers, and I think it's also, I think this all still relates to Elf in one way or another because it's um, we're torn between being dis- prescriptivists and descriptivists. Um, it's mm-hmm. impossible to teach as a pure descriptivist, as somebody who only sees the language as how people are using it. It's practically impossible to give students useful rules and terms that they can actually take home and study. Um, by just saying, oh, people say all sorts of things. That doesn't really help anybody. Um, Totally. Yeah. And I think with Elf, we have this sort of dilemma a little bit as well. Yeah. Have you heard of Danny Norrington Davis? He wrote this really good book uh, about grammar. Um, And in it, he suggests teaching grammar um, in a way that doesn't prescribe uh, so to avoid sentences like we use the present perfect to etc etc or the present perfect is used to etc etc mm-hmm. he he suggests that instead we should get students to see the reasons for the usage of certain forms yeah. for example offering them a text and say okay what is the right why is the writer using the present perfect in this sentence in this context in this sentence he is choosing to use the present perfect because, and he gets students to figure it out for themselves by looking at the context, mm. by looking at the text, mm-hmm. and creating their own grammar reasons. So he takes he takes the word grammar rules and changes it to grammar reasons. And in the book he, he wrote is called From Rules to Reasons. From Rules uh, to Reason by yeah, Danny Norrington Davis. Okay, yes, excellent because it totally takes what we do. It's not radically changing anything, but it's saying, hey. Perhaps we need to get students themselves to become the observers, to describe the grammar they see, uh, rather than seeing the teacher as this fountain of knowledge prescribing Mm -hmm. grammar rules. Get students Mm -hmm. themselves to notice things and say, okay, so Gabriel, he used the passive voice in this particular context to express that the, the doer is not important or to express that the process is what's important, et cetera, et cetera. Mm, to make a um, joke or whatever, yeah. Yeah, um, and I think that that is a real... That's nice. Real, it's nice like what way of looking at it. Mm-hmm. What is the language signaling? Not what is it, like, technically doing? What is it signaling? What are the, yeah, what are the reasons for something? Yeah, after all, what is language if not for the purpose of communicating? And yeah. so if we, if we ignore the user's intention, the speaker's intention, if we ignore the context and just learn rules for the sake of rules, then then language isn't going to be that useful, unfortunately. Yeah, it's better to learn physics instead if you're going to do that. Because <laughs> <laughs> it works. <laughs> works with that mentality. Yeah, yeah, totally. This is but great. Rules Thanks are for the easy, isn't it? Yeah, that's a good rules, rules are easy and, and, and yeah. rules are convenient. And, and if we've taught the same rules for years on end, to suddenly then be told that that rule is not so important, <laughs> coming back to Elf, um, might really offend some people. So what I say to that really is, I'm not saying teach students to drop the third person S. I'm not saying that. I'm not saying teach students to say he want instead of he wants. I'm saying prioritize the precious classroom time you've got. If students are coming into your English lesson for two hours every week, that precious two hours a week, what are you going to spend those two hours on? Are you going to allow them lots of practice to discuss and to use that English? 
Or are you going to spend half of those two hours doing gap fill exercises to get them to get third person S right? Yeah, and it's like, I think it's about prioritizing. And it's not just a question of simply correcting them and then they know it. Because as we all know as teachers, some things take ages uh, for students to get, especially ones that don't seem to be very useful, like the third person S. And I was reading somewhere that um, articles are a strange phenomenon, uh, uh, and the, because despite the fact they're ostensibly one of the simplest uh, elements of language, um, they are one of the very last um, things that students uh, get right. I'm using inverted quote quotes again here that, you know, you have advanced students who are still tripping up on, on using articles. So it's not just a question of, yeah, like a couple of minutes of classroom time. This is constant correction from elementary up to advanced. So I think then, then the question comes back to priority. So the teacher mm -hmm. who's choosing to correct what do you choose to correct? Do you correct that particular vocabulary item that could really cause a misunderstanding? Mm -hmm. Or do you correct the third person S or the use of articles? Exactly. So, yeah, I like, I like that you brought it up that, you know, the, a complaint or a, a criticism rather is um, that they say, oh, we're supposed to teach them bad English. It's no, it's not that. It's just we prioritize our corrections. Exactly. We prioritize how we spend point? our students' time yeah. um, and, 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 and focus that time on things that would really make them good English speakers, good communicators, communicators. Um, rather than, you know, the nitty gritty of, of, of grammar items that might or might not really matter all that much. Now, of course, the caveat is, what mm -hmm. if my students are taking an exam? Oh, yeah. They, they always ruin everything, don't they? Exam. <laughs> <laughs> and that's where I say perhaps exams need to change. Yeah. And they are. You know, if you look at some exams like IELTS, um, the, all exams have their, you know, their goods and their bads, the pros and the cons. But mm. we do notice with a lot of these exams, like the Cambridge Main Suite, the IELTS exams, they are trying more and more to focus on the communicative aspect. The, the How competent are you at getting your message across? less more so than you know are you getting every single grammar item right of course it doesn't hurt to get the grammar items right but to focus actually on the communicative aspect yeah. rather than you know but then you see a lot of other exams like say the TOEFL exams Oh exams, my God. exams that focus on multiple choice questions and discrete item testing where there is a right and a wrong answer are mm -hmm. much cheaper and easier to carry out because you can simply get a machine to mark those papers because there is a right and a wrong answer. Whereas exams that focus on communicative competence might need a physical human being there to mm -hmm. interact with the candidate and to actually see if they are getting their message across. And so there's a lot of training. It's a lot of training. Yeah. It's expensive because you need ex real life examiners to actually be at mm -hmm. that location um, and it's time consuming. So you can imagine why some exams or exam boards or schools or governments might prefer the multiple choice discrete item type exams. But yeah. if they really, if they really, really want those candidates to come out of the exams being able to actually speak and be fluent and communicative with the language and not just, you know, get their grammar items right, then they've got to really rethink what the exam is testing and doing. Absolutely. Yeah, I agree 100% with you. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's, that's the thing. But if they are teaching to one of those exams, you might have to do that third person S stuff. 
you just yes. might you just might you just might yeah you know, but, yeah, um, I, I think you, you have to adapt to your circumstances. And I, I am in no position to say that, you know, what I say is the gospel truth for every single teacher in the world. I think every teacher has, you have parents to answer to, you have government boards to answer to, you know, yeah. so I Strict think it's people about, out there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's about blending those things and figuring yeah. out what's important to you as a teacher, really. Totally. Um, I've got another question. Um, I wanted to bring things around. I wanted to start with the um, feature side and then move on to the communicative side. But what I've liked that's happened is we've just basically covered everything and gone back, and <laughs> forth, which is cool. It's more dynamic. Um, but uh, I did want to ask a straightforward question. Um, inter inter international intercultural communication is kind of your main thing right now. Is that a fair thing to say? Yeah, I would say intercultural communication and communication skills, which is slightly different, but yeah, but but there, there yeah. are lots of overlaps, yeah, no doubt, yeah. Um, but what does that mean to you exactly? Can you simply like how would you define it? What kind of examples would you give, um, that, that illustrate what intercultural communication is as a concept? I think the moment you're learning English as a foreign language, you and the moment you use English as a foreign language, you are already engaging in intercultural communication mm -hmm. because it is highly unlikely that you're using English to speak to someone of your own culture. Now, right. let me define culture. Culture isn't just, it could be national culture, like the country you come from, but culture goes beyond that. Culture, mm -hmm. culture is the beliefs, the behavior, the attitudes that are held by a group of people. That group of people could be could share a nationality, but they could share an age group. Like, you know, you would know that um, mm -hmm. your culture is probably very different from your parents. Right. <laughs> a generational <laughs> gap, if you call it. Um, genders, it could be education background. It could be industries, right? The, the, the job that um, the company you work for, corporate culture, for example, could be different company to company. Um, industries have different cultures. Even the departments within a company could have very different cultures. Your IT guys might behave mm. and work very differently from, say, your marketing guys or your salespeople, for example. Um, and in, in, in real life, in, outside the business world, we see it happening too. Um, you know, my board gaming friends, I'm a big board gaming nerd, my mm -hmm. board gaming friends, probably have a very very different way of relating to each other and talking to each other from say my friends in the teaching world <laughs> my colleagues in the teaching world for example mm -hmm. um, and then again my friends who I get to know because we are all parents and um, we got to know each other because of our babies we again have a different way of talking to each other uh, different topics of conversation different communication styles etc etc so I think culture is it goes way beyond um culture of a country of, of a nation um, and culture's fluid so mm -hmm. when we talk about culture we're not talking about this thing that doesn't change we're talking about something that's dynamic because cultures of groups are constantly changing as they interact with each other yeah so when I when my interest in intercultural communication came into play when I realized that that culture goes beyond do's and don'ts. It goes beyond categorizing people and stereotyping people in boxes. It's about helping people to adapt to different ways of seeing things, different ways of communicating. Um, take, for example, turn-taking styles, right? Um, 
I, I, I was talking about the simplistic definition of um, the rugby style of turn-taking, where there's a lot of interrupting and pushing aside and Okay, so turn-taking, turn-taking, we're talking about like when someone speaks and the next person speaks. Yeah, yeah. The dynamic going on. And the rugby, we, rugby style. Rugby style. So we interrupt each other lots. Mm-hmm. We speak really quickly. There's hardly any silences in between our turns. You know, you speak and then I speak and then you speak and it's all very fast like a rugby game. And then yeah. there is the bowling style, which is quite the opposite. If you think about the game of bowling, yeah. you know, you bowl, you speak, and then there's a bit of silence in the middle while I get my ball ready, and then I bowl, <laughs> and then you wait, and you listen, and then the silence again. So some cultures are more used to a bowling style of turn-taking, mm-hmm. and some cultures are much more used to a rugby style of turn-taking. Okay. And if those two cultures come together... If they don't understand that this is a cultural issue, they might start to make judgments that are perhaps unfair. So um, I've had trainees saying, you know, those people, they're so boring. They never have an opinion. They never talk. Mm. You can imagine what type of uh, culture they're talking about. They're talking about bowling culture, right? Right, right. So much silence. I've had first-hand experience of this. Yeah, I had a student um, and... uh, I'd ask him sort of questions and the silences before he had answered was so long. And I thought, okay, I'm going to go for a strategy of just letting him get his, because I thought the silences meant that he was trying to figure out the English and he was trying to get it, you know, get the sentence correct and so on. And after like a while, I thought, okay, I'm going to ask him about this. Like, and I, I asked him if he was actually collecting his English together. He was like, no, I'm just thinking. <laughs> like... Yeah. And if you're used to a rugby style, mm-hmm. um, you, you might find that silence in between turns very disconcerting, very disturbing. Yeah. You, well, you, I left you find it very uncomfortable to, to have silence. And then you start to keep, you, you keep talking, you know, <laughs> you keep talking to fill in that silence. And very soon you're the only person talking in that conversation. Yeah, because when I told him that, like, in sort of, at least in British, like, most, I don't want to generalize, but, you know, in the UK, generally speaking, and he'd moved to Germany, and I said, like, probably in Germany, too, silence is awkward. And he was, like, really surprised. (laughs) No, no, it isn't. (laughs) Yeah, he had no idea at all about that And, of course, think about the opposite as well. If a person's Mm -hmm. used to a bowling style of Mm turn-taking, and then they come you know, into contact with someone who is a rugby communicator, they're going to say, without understanding the situation, they might jump to conclusions and say, oh, they're so rude. They're constantly interrupting me and they just won't shut up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I think when, when I, I once presented this whole idea of rugby and bowling to my class and, and, and mm-hmm. we had a really good discussion um, about it. And I could see some light bulb moments in, in some of my students who, who were like, oh, my goodness. Oh, so that, that was what it was about. I just thought they were a bit stupid and didn't have an opinion. <laughs> and it was really good to get that out of the way, to get those judgments out yeah. and open and to go, this... oh, right. So we were wrong about this, you know, and, and to make them more aware that it might just be an issue of communication style. Yeah, there's so many little things, aren't there, between um between cultures and as you said cultures aren't just national or regional they're they're individual and fluid but yeah that there are so many i i guess and it, it takes a lot of um patience i'd imagine to to start getting used to that idea i find this absolutely fascinating because my my, my husband is irish 
I'm mm-hmm. Singaporean, but I'm now British. Uh, mm-hmm. I spent most of my adult life as a British person. I've lived in mm-hmm. Germany. Um, you know, my kids were born. Some of one of my child is born is one of my children is born in in, in Germany. Two of them were born in York, um, and we've had a lot of uh, international experience as a couple. And every time I hear stories about intercultural misunderstandings, or you know, even the misunderstandings that happen between me and my husband, they're just precious. They're they're, they're just great stories. And in my book, I've, I've collated a lot, of, a lot of these stories. And in, in, in uh, intercultural cool. training, we call them critical incidents. So a critical uh. incident is a case study. It's a mini case study. It's a bit like, um, okay, so John met uh, Sunny, and they were talking, and Sunny holds John's hand saying, let's go there together. If you were John, what would you do? If you were right. Sunny, what would you do? So little, little mini stories like that that, that I got from both my real life experiences or stories that my trainees, my clients have told me, my friends have told me, um, that I've put into little critical incidents with a task, usually a what would you do kind of task. I find these go down really well in the classroom. Um, mm-hmm. As a language teacher, they, they are beautiful speaking practice material because the moment you have a controversial incident, followed by the question, what would you do? Students often jump on the chance to, 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 mm-hmm. to voice their opinion. You know, if I were him, I would do this. No, 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 that's wrong. If I were him, I would do this. And, and it's wonderful speaking practice, but at the same time, it's wonderful for awareness raising to, to make you realize that yeah. people do things in different ways. And I guess not just from the critical incident, but also the way that your fellow students are reacting, you can start seeing that it's there, also their cultural like differences that are making you react differently to it. Oh, absolutely. I I had a teacher training group once and we were talking about business cards. Uh, And interestingly, I just simply brought up the question, um, you know, what would you do if you see a business card like this? And I showed them Mm -hmm. a little critical incident of someone giving a business card. And it said, say, for example, Dr. Gabriel Clark. How would you react to that? And and mm. I had different nationalities in my teacher training group. And one person um, got very upset about this. Um, mm. One of my British trainees, he said, I would never put the word doctor on a business card. It is pompous, <laughs> arrogant, and he's clearly not a medical doctor. So why on earth would you call yourself a doctor? They put clearly, you know, they're just arrogant people, right? Um, and then I had these German teacher trainees who completely disagreed. I went, they, they spent a long time doing a PhD. Why should they not put doctor on the card? And this massive argument started. <laughs> well, I say argument. It was, a, it was a very interesting debate. Mm-hmm. And from it, one of the students themselves, one of the trainees themselves piped up and said, this is exactly what she is talking about. We're seeing the world from through our very own filters. Mm-hmm. We think that doctor is totally normal if you've done a PhD to put doctor on your business card. He totally thinks it's not normal. And we're having this big argument only because we're seeing the world through completely different lenses. And this is exactly what Chia was talking about. And it was just wonderful to see them come to this realization that no one is right or wrong. We are all right and we are all wrong. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and we need That's... to be sensitive. That's something I wanted to get to, because talking about all of this, like kind of made me think of this question I'm about to ask. Um, the more you sort of study this stuff and the more you see this and the more you notice this, the more I guess you can see that there are just how different we all are. And I'm wondering, like, 
I mean, this could be a very positive thing, but can it could it also make you feel that we're also um, isolated from each other? Is there some sort of um, like I don't want to bring things <laughs> to a downer, but can it can it kind of cause you to sort of consider that like we're 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 less united than we first thought we were, or the upside of that being that when people see the differences and recognize the differences. Um, they can sort of somehow be be united in that. Do you know I what I mean? Say, like, yeah, I totally know awareness what you're of, of the fact that we're more different than we thought we might be. I think it works both ways. I I think mm. we are much more similar than we thought we are, mm-hmm. but we are also a lot more different in ways we have never imagined. So, like the, you know, the story we talked about intonation gravy versus yeah. gravy. Right, that's story. not something that a normal person off the street would consider when they're talking mm. to someone. They wouldn't say, "Oh, maybe he didn't mean it that way because his intonation pattern might be different from mine because he he has a different accent." It's not something that normally occurs to people, and so there's a very high risk of misunderstandings due to things that you are not aware of. Mm-hmm. Right, it, things that you are aware of, like you know, when someone clearly has used the wrong vocabulary, uh, pointing to a car and calling it a bus. <laughs> that is a clear, you know, misuse or mistake, and you go. It's easier yeah. to notice those things and go, okay, sorry, you're pointing that. That's not a bus. That's a car. <laughs> it's easier to point it out, and 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 so that there is practically zero risk of a misunderstanding if that person is pointing to the car. Um, however, when dealing with more sort of nebulous concepts, more you know, soft skill related, mm-hmm. um, communication skills related concepts, sometimes. You know, when things can't neatly be put put into boxes where we can be told it's, you know, it's either black or white. Mm-hmm. Um, those are the more difficult things to notice. And because those are more subtle, they are more likely to cause a misunderstanding. Mm-hmm. And so I think, although I'm making it sound like we are all so different, mm-hmm. um, but I, I, it's, it's more about noticing and understanding those differences and being aware of them that can then help us to be more united. Because once mm-hmm. we know the potential for misunderstanding, then can we comfortably focus on the things that we do have in common? Does that make sense? Yeah, <laughs> it do- totally does. It absolutely does. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, intercultural um, communication is something that can actually bring us together. I mean, it's, it sounds like kind of obvious when you put all those words together, but mm-hmm. um, just this it's, it's walking into it blindly, isn't it? If, mm-hmm. if you walk into a communication situation blindly, expecting them to speak English like you, with the same intonation patterns like you, with the same turn-taking styles like you, mm-hmm. with the same knowledge, assumptions, cultural backgrounds, you know, knowledge of Heston Blumenthal and trifles. If you expect mm-hmm. them to have those exact things that you have, then you would be sorely disappointed because you would realize that that person is not you. <laughs> and yeah. so, you know, we adapt. We adapt, as I said earlier, we adapt when we speak to our parents, we adapt when we speak to our friends in the pub. Why not adapt a bit further and understand um, the differences, the possible differences and the risks to miscommunication when we're communicating across cultures, across borders? Yeah. yeah. And this is valuable not just for teachers or students, but for everyone. I yes. Think. No, to- totally, totally. And and I, when I wrote the book, uh, Successful International Communication, I didn't write it for ELT students or ELT teachers per se. I wrote it for everyone. 
um, mm -hmm. because I, I knew that these were skills that um, were needed, not just in an English language teaching context, but the skills that need that everyone needs. And even if you have them, there's no harm in being reminded of them once yeah, in a while. Yeah, because they can be unifying, which is, yeah, what the world needs more of always. Um, cool, that's, that's a really good place to end it. Um, do you have any comments you want to add? Um, mention your book one more time, if you like. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think I'm good. I'm you sure? Good. Yeah. International yeah. communication. Um, successful international communication. Sorry, sorry, Chia. Yeah, successful international communication available where books are available. Um, <laughs> <laughs> cool. Well, thanks. Thanks so much for, for being here. This was such a joy. Um, I got so much out of it and I hope you did too. And yeah, thanks so much. Thank you. Thanks for having me here. It's been a pleasure. Cool. Thanks a lot. And that's it. Um, I warned you it would get philosophical and it got philosophical, but there's nothing wrong with being philosophical. And if you say the word philosophical enough times, philosophical starts to sound very strange indeed philosophical anyway uh thanks a lot for listening nothing much to add um i hope you enjoyed it as much as i did which is a lot um and uh yeah um come and visit us at clarkmiller.com if you're not on our mailing list do join the mailing list we're gonna have some cool opportunities for free and fun stuff um coming up hopefully in the next in the next few months um uh, meanwhile uh stay safe be happy and i will catch you next time Ciao for now.